Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 9, Episode 20, Bushido During Sengoku, Bonus Episode. Unsurprisingly, the Age of War was something of an age of opportunities for Japan's warriors. The phenomenon of Gekokujo seems to suggest, however, that these opportunities were mostly available to lower-ranked kin groups who were, in the eyes of the established semi-aristocratic Genji and Heike-descended samurai clans, little better than bandits, pirates, and Ashigaru. In fact, more than a few retainers and even daimyo of the late Sengoku period had gotten their start as actual Ashigaru. What did this seeming advancement mean for Bushido? What was the way of the warrior in the Age of War? The concept of Bushido is often something of a frustration for researchers of Japanese history and culture. I have found it cited around the internet as a catch-all reason for nearly every Japanese cultural practice like removing shoes in the doorway of one's home or studying hard to do well on high school entrance exams. I once saw a person claim that the samurai didn't use shields because it was seen as cowardly and contrary to the principles of Bushido, which I found particularly amusing because the samurai absolutely did use shields in combat, though not necessarily in the same manner as their European counterparts. The hard truth about Bushido is that it is and always has been a somewhat nebulous concept. While we can point to various treatises on the way of sword and bow from previous eras as forerunners to the Bushido that would emerge as an actual formal code during the upcoming Edo period, it helps to keep in mind the influence of Confucianism upon Japanese culture, wherein such codes were more like broad principles somewhat open to interpretation rather than specific laws, practices, and commands. To paraphrase the only good Pirates of the Caribbean film, the codes of Bushido were more like guidelines. In addition to surviving philosophical works regarding proper behavior for warriors, the constitutions of the two shogunates contain certain parameters for expectations between samurai, government, and the common people, but in the Sengoku period, the various regional laws proclaimed by daimyo also contributed to the general understanding of the warrior's way. I'll quote from some of the pertinent parts of these codes below, taking them from the book Japan, A Documentary History. I've recommended this book before, and I'll do it again in the future. If you really want to read some interesting Japanese historical sources for yourself, it's indispensable. We'll start with the code of the Asakura clan, who especially desired that their warriors remain frugal and practical in how they spent the disposable portion of their stipends. Quote, Do not excessively covet swords and daggers made by famous masters. Even if you can own a sword or dagger worth 10,000 pieces, it can be overcome by 100 spears each worth 100 pieces. Therefore, use the 10,000 pieces to procure 100 spears and arm 100 men with them. You can in this manner defend yourself in time of war. End quote. It could be that the Asakura clan leadership had a problem with their rank-and-file samurai wasting their stipends on weapons crafted by famous artisans, 
but it could also just as easily be reactionary declaration based on the behavior of the Asakura clan's neighboring kin groups. However, further articles within that law code also discourage the Asakura samurai from inviting famous performers from the capital to travel to Omi and perform special no plays, suggesting that they instead patronize from the local crop of thespians. While this could have been economy-minded, trying to limit such expenditures to resources within the domain, it was also economically-minded, as local theater troops would be more affordable than those imported from Yamashiro. Interestingly enough, the Asakura Code also recommended sending a group of trusted samurai on a junket around the entire domain three times a year to engage in discourse with common people regarding their hardships, local political corruption, and other opinions. It even recommends that the daimyo join this group periodically, provided they wear a disguise. The samurai official who goes among the common people in disguise was a common story trope which represented the hopes of commoners more than any actual reality. It is more likely that the advice to go in disguise merely meant disguised as a lower-ranked samurai, rather than as a merchant, artisan, or farmer. In Kanto, the Hojo clan adopted a code of conduct for their vassals which emphasized personal discipline, good hygiene, and absolute honesty. Hojo Soun, the founder of the later Hojo clan, penned this code himself, which seems like a bold maneuver considering how many of his victories were the direct result of purposeful deception. However, within that contradiction lies a truth at the heart of Bushido and arguably at the heart of nearly all such warriors' codes. There was often one set of rules for the vassals, retainers, and lower associates, and another set of rules entirely for the daimyo. These law codes were not merely lofty commandments handed down from on high, but generally served the political purposes of the relevant clans. I mentioned previously that the Takeda clan forbade its vassals from marrying into families who resided outside of the Takeda domain, the obvious objective being to limit interference from ambitious neighboring clans who might try to utilize Takeda vassals as their spies. However, the great regional clans needed to carefully balance their political objectives against the local customs and cultures of the places where they governed. The Chosokabe clan, for example, emphasized in their law code the need for every able-bodied man to train themselves in various ways of fighting in case they were needed to defend the Chosokabe domain from invaders. Eventually, a class of common farmer warriors would emerge in Tosa province who were fiercely loyal to the Chosokabe in spite of the fact that they were not official samurai. The privileges enjoyed by these fighters known as the Ichiryo Gusoku would eventually make them practically the equals of the provincial samurai, a fact which would make life rather difficult for a certain future clan who would attempt to take possession of Tosa province and oust the Chosokabe. While their chief function during the Age of Civil Wars was obviously making war, the samurai were encouraged to be more than mere warriors. Enjoying the arts of tea ceremony, flower arranging, ink painting, calligraphy, poetry, and reading classic literature were often considered essential for any samurai who reached the rank of retainer or who hoped one day to be chosen for such a trusted role within their clan. 
It is worth noting that not every samurai believed that appreciation and enjoyment of fine arts was a worthwhile pursuit. There were some who viewed such pursuits as wasteful luxuries and promoted a rather Spartan ideal for Japan's official warrior class. The tensions between aesthetic enjoyment and martial discipline would come to define some of the intra-clan conflicts which will emerge next season. Regardless of anti-aesthetic iconoclasts, the samurai actually had their own dedicated branch of Japanese poetry, a genre rather morbidly named death poetry. Death poems were meant to be final parting thoughts to leave the world in the event of a warrior's death, especially on the battlefield. Death poems were often sewn into garments worn by the composer and could be found by an enemy who had slain them. And speaking of death, Bushido certainly had a dark side which was cultivated in part by the conditions of Sengoku Jidai. I mentioned previously that the samurai engaged in something called the Head Viewing Ceremony, a tradition which Minamoto Yoritomo allegedly initiated. By the Sengoku period, this ceremony became more like a festival with especially gruesome decorations. There was often music and sake, as well as a more ceremonial phase, where rewards were given for the heads claimed. Taking the head of a famous enemy could mean a big promotion and or stipend increase for any warrior, so being able to confirm the identity of an alleged hero of the opposing side was a critical check against dishonest warriors seeking unjustified rewards. When Oda Nobunaga won the Battle of Okehazama, the principal head which served as the centerpiece for the afterparty was that of Imagawa Yoshimoto. Particularly austere opponents were given a posthumous honor of Ohaguro, which is the method by which someone's teeth were dyed black with a mixture of vinegar and iron filings. While Ohaguro was still a popular practice among the nobility of Kyoto, and had in times past seen popularity as well among the samurai, by the Sengoku period it was generally reserved for the heads of high-ranking enemies, and intended as a way of honoring their rank after death in order to avoid being haunted by their onryo, their vengeful spirit. In fact, the particular retainer whose job was to officially identify the heads of the slain would do so with most of his face hidden behind an open fan, so that the onryo of his enemies could not identify him from the afterlife and haunt him. Other ceremonial measures were likewise taken to soothe the vengeful ghosts of the slain after the head-viewing ceremony had ended. Gruesome as having a severed heads party is, there were other practices ascribed to the samurai which are darker still. Some warriors, upon receiving a new weapon, desired to test it on live human subjects to ensure it would work on the battlefield. These unscrupulous fighters would wait in alleys and poorly lit areas until the darkest hours of the night, and then throw themselves onto an unsuspecting commoner and cut them down with their brand new sword, spear, or halberd. This practice of weapons testing, called sujigiri, was obviously illegal, and there is some historical debate regarding its actual real-world frequency. There are certainly accounts of samurai acting like serial killers, murdering a random person four nights in a row before being caught and then executed. These stories appear to be the exception rather than the rule, and I'm inclined to think that this kind of thing was not very common. That is not to say, however, that samurai never turned their weapons on unarmed commoners. 
In a society which was as obsessed with etiquette and hierarchical politeness as feudal Japan, rudeness itself could be a capital offense. Part of a samurai's duty was keeping the populace in line, and they did so by targeting with ferocious violence any commoner who was insufficiently respectful toward the samurai, the local officials, and their liege lord. In the novel Shogun by James Clavell, there is an incident where a merchant who sells oil is nearly trampled by the horse of the protagonist, an Englishman, who is on a hunt with his samurai friends. The oil seller makes a rude comment to the protagonist, who has been accepted as a samurai of the Tokugawa clan, and one of his friends borrows his sword and promptly slashes and murders the oil seller. While this account is fictional, it is very much in keeping with what we know about the law as it existed during the Sengoku period and beyond. Nitobe Inazo, in his seminal work Bushido, relays an anecdote in which a commoner warns a samurai that he saw a flea jump on his back. The samurai responds by decapitating the commoner on the spot without even a word. How was he insulted by the commoner who seems to have been trying to warn him of danger? Nitobe explains that by claiming a flea was on the samurai's back in the first place, the commoner was implying, albeit accidentally, that the samurai was a beast like a horse or oxen. Thus the unfortunate man was killed, and, I'm assuming, no one probably told that samurai that he had fleas ever again. This example has always horrified people when I've shared it at parties, which is probably why I don't get invited to a lot of them. However, it is worth mentioning that not every perceived insult resulted in extrajudicial execution, and that the samurai, who were too liberal in their perception of insults and thus killed a lot of commoners, were often punished for the carnage they caused, sometimes even by execution. The daimyo desired that their commoners be hard-working, tax-paying, and authority-fearing, but they rightfully understood that there was little profit in rampant killing, and that eventually too much slaughter would mean shortages. After all, commoners could not work hard, pay taxes, and fear the authorities if they were dead. As the regional clans consolidated their large, multi-province domains, it was natural for the more powerful samurai to cultivate a cult-like following of obedient vassals and retainers. It is rather laughable to think of Uesugi Kenshin lecturing his warriors on the importance of loyalty to one's liege lord, considering he extorted his name and title from his former liege lord, but I think his example is particularly illuminating regarding how Gekoku-jo fit into the collective warrior ethos. It may sound somewhat pithy, but the primary objective of any warrior was to win battles. While the relationship between vassals, retainers, and their daimyo nearly always favored said daimyo, the regional chieftains were also expected to give fair rewards for good service, lead battles with courage and cleverness, and not to throw the lives of their warriors away in reckless stratagems. Bushido during the Sengoku period, to a certain degree, was a two-way street. After the dust had settled and a new shogunate took charge of the nation, any samurai reading about Uesugi Kenshin's rise to power might be horrified that he betrayed his lord but his contemporaries probably thought he did the Uesugi clan a favor by providing decisive leadership and reversing many of the failures of his former liege. Winning battles and expanding the Uesugi domains meant that Kenshin had more land which he could grant to his loyal fighters. It is tempting to contrast Kenshin's actions with those of Yamamoto Kansuke, 
the general of the Takeda clan who led the doomed Nakairi detachment, which was crushed by Kenshin's army at the dramatic Fourth Battle of Kawanakajima. Kansuke had been trying to take his enemy by surprise, but when he saw that the Uesugi army was prepared for his assault, he led the attack himself and was killed in the process. His actions were seen as a shining example of the way of the warrior. He enthusiastically threw himself into battle regardless of the odds, prioritizing duty to his lord above his own life. Showing contempt for the enemy in the face of certain death was absolutely a pillar of Bushido, which would live on long after the Sengoku period. In every society throughout history, there is always a separation between the ideal and the real, between aspiration and execution. The samurai of the Sengoku period were not always given a clear line between their ideals and their behavior, and often the very principles of Bushido required them to do things they might have otherwise considered dishonorable. When Oda Nobunaga ordered the destruction of the temple complex atop Mount Hiei, and the subsequent merciless execution of every man, woman, and child within, there were likely some samurai who had qualms about such a radical action. That being said, if they hoped to continue in Nobunaga's service, they would have found a way to compartmentalize those qualms and push through their own objections so that they could not be called disobedient, an accusation which may have been more shameful than the wanton slaughter of unarmed civilians. Like many ideals, Bushido was largely a matter of perspective. Ultimately, what mattered to the daimyo was being able to score victories and reward one's vassals fairly. The vassal's concern was to serve one's master bravely and loyally. If either party failed to uphold their end of this arrangement, Gekoku-jo might just rear its unpleasant head. Next time, we will discuss the warriors on the other end of the spectrum from the samurai, the shadow warriors who often provided military intelligence, covert actions, and general sneakiness which often assured victory on the battlefield. Yes, it's finally time to talk about ninjas. Until then, thank you for listening. If you would like access to exclusive bonus episodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes, please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash ahistoryofjapan. Thank you.